0: You see, people collect all kinds
1: of things. New, old, priceless, worthless. Darling, it doesn't matter what. I simply must know why. Those
2: mothballs shouldn't get to keep all the secrets.
1: This is the Mothball Prophecies. Hello and welcome to the Mothball Prophecies. I'm Samantha Mashburn.
2: And I'm Jill Huffman.
1: And today we're sitting down with Kate from Roses and Rue Antiques. She deals in Victoriana, devotional objects, hair work, keepsakes, books, and ephemera. She's been on our radar from the beginning. We finally are able to sit down with her. And we are so honored to sit down with her today, especially this episode's a little different. Jill's usually next to me, but today we're all on Zoom because we finally won the raffle.
2: We did. We <laughs> held out as long as we could.
1: Jill tested positive for COVID. My test is currently um, in the works, so we are all home. We got our drinks. Jill can't taste hers. Nope. But nothing. here we are. Kate, how are you on the East Coast today?
0: I'm great. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Oh, man. We are, uh, you know, I have to be careful when I choose people because I, I keep picking people that just collect the things I love. <laughs> Which is fine, but
2: it's fine because I learn a lot of the stuff because I'm new to the whole collecting, and so I'm like,
1: ooh, now I'm going to look out for that. Yes, which is, I mean, I think that Kate and I align in the same thing of uh, our collections are a little different than normal collectors. Kate, you collect mostly well from the Victorian era, right? Right. So I wanted we we talked a little bit about it before we started you know, we think that here on the show that everybody has a story that led up to their collecting. Nobody just starts collecting because they see something that looks really great in an antique store. There's always like something that pushes the momentum forward. And you started kind of being surrounded by antiques at an early age. Did that hinder your timeline with wanting to collect? Because it didn't seem like maybe uh,
0: out of the norm to collect? What was that like? Well, both of my parents were antiques dealers, so I grew up in a house full of antiques and they liked the sort of things that were sort of popular at the time, um, like in the late 80s and the early 90s. Early Americana was very in that sort of hearth and home kind of vibe, um, colonial era, pieces of furniture, primitives. And that's really what my mother likes. She loves um, shaker items. Um, things that are very simple, you know, the the shaker's their most sacred hymn is called "Simple Gifts." It is a gift to be simple. So I don't know where I came from. I went <laughs> in exactly the opposite direction when I finally found my interests in the antiques world. Everything that I was drawn to was kind of um, very extravagant and ornate. I think, um, well, whatever your parents like is never cool obviously. (laughs) So perhaps that's why it took me so long to come around. I think as with many things, I can draw back this interest to finding Oscar Wilde when I was in high school. I was like 14 and I landed on his work by accident. I'd I'd fallen in love with the movie Velvet Goldmine, which is about the glam rock era in England and David Bowie's impact on that and about the lives of uh, queer people, how that was impacted by the glam rock movement. And Oscar Wilde is heavily referred to and quoted throughout this movie. And I'd never heard of him before, but there was so much material there, I sort of sat down and I looked every single thing up, and I read a lot of his work, a lot of his essays on art, and I think I maybe started collecting Victorian items as a way to put myself in his world Mm -hmm. more and to feel closer to him. Mm -hmm. So I just started reading lots of other things from that time. So when I started, it was all very late 19th century stuff, um, things that were related to uh, the Pre-Raphaelite movement, the Arts and Crafts movement, the Aesthetic movement, of which he was a major proponent, and then further on into the early 20th century with the Symbolist movement, the Decadent movement, Vienna Secession, Art Nouveau, all of that—they all kind of link up around the back. They all yeah. have in common. And if you like one, probably you'll you'll like the other movements. So I think that's sort of where things began for me that sort of sparked my initial interest.
1: Yeah. That is, I would say like my growing up, like my grandmother collected antiques, my mom kind of did, but it was the very same kind of stuff you're talking about. Like the, everybody kind of had it in their houses. It wasn't necessarily an original style, and I am just like a, (laughs) I don't know, angsty bleeding teenager that was like, I have to be different. I have to do something that nobody else is doing in my small town to be cool. Did your did your parents did they like did they come by antique dealing because of their family history? Was it just they were just like this looks fun, let's do this.
0: That I don't really know. Interesting. Um. My dad was never really in the picture, so I never asked him that question. But he was kind of... My mom describes him as being sort of an American Pickers character, like that kind of guy. So she'll watch that show and she'll be like, Caitlin, your father was just like that. He'd come home one day with like a rusted old bike, and I'd say, what the hell did you bring that home for, Jerry? And then he'd tell it. (laughs) So I guess that was his vibe a little bit. And I I think he he was a very good seller and my mom says that he could sell fleas to a dog and that I've inherited a lot of those sort of natural abilities somehow. Um, I think he just sort of bought and sold whatever he could flip and he wasn't too particular about curating. Although there were things that he liked like antique instruments, for instance. Sure. And um I don't know how my mom got started collecting. I never really asked her that. That would be a good question to ask my mom. Well, it's you um, know,
1: it's one of those things where if you, you, you know, you grow up into it or you're always around it, you just think that oh, that's yeah. just like.
0: It's like a fact of life. Totally.
1: Yeah. I remember, you know, when I started, like when you realize your parents are people and not just like <laughs> sexless Barbies. Um, I remember I asked my grand, my mom, while well, we were gardening and I said, Hey, I want to ask you a question. And she just like, looked at me like, don't. And, uh, I said, if you, when you were getting ready with your friends to go out before you had kids, what were you guys like pre-gaming with if you drank and what were you listening to? And she just like stopped and leaned on the shovel and she was like, and the stuff she said was like super surprising to me because my mom's pretty docile and she was like, definitely whiskey. And I was like, who are you? Yeah. And then she was, um, they were always listening to like classic rock or whatever. And I was like, wow. So I feel like, you know, the older I get now when I ask those questions, because I'm forever curious and want to know those stories. What do you think your mom would have listened to? Oh,
0: I already know, because I had to listen to it all growing up. And (laughs) thankfully that did include some things that I, I do enjoy. Um, I'm not quite on the John Denver bandwagon that she tried to drag me onto. You play that country road song in, in a bar and like the whole bar sings it. I am running out the door so fast. Mm-hmm. Back when I used to smoke cigarettes, I'd be like groping around in my purse, looking for an excuse to get my <laughs> cigarettes and get out of that bar. So not John Denver, but certainly Fleetwood Mac. And The Doors and Jimi Hendrix. I can still remember the first time I really looked at Stevie Nicks and decided, this is for me. Mm -hmm. This is so 90s. I was in a radio shack. And remember how they had like a (laughs) giant wall of TVs? Mm -hmm. And they all were playing the same thing at the same time. They were playing the dance, which was their reunion concert from Uh. 1997. And my mom was like, oh, look at her. Look, she's so beautiful. Look at her shoes. And of course she had shoes on that were like six inch tall, like knee high boots and her beautiful black sequined, um, sequined um, like shawls Mm -hmm. and her long hair and her moon necklace. And I just sort of, I pretended that I didn't like it because again, what your parents like can never possibly be cool. But inwardly, inwardly something started to change. And many years later, this happened. <laughs> huh?
1: Yeah. I, um, you and I share a similar affinity for that with, um, we talked about it a lot and it was like, oh, about like the dark crystal and the labyrinth and David Bowie. Yes. Cause those were to me, what Stevie Nicks was to you was just like, Oh my.
0: Well, I found the dark crystal when I was four, for some reason, my uncle's girlfriend thought that was an appropriate thing for a four year old to watch, but it, didn't scare me. I immediately loved it. I used to ask Santa for a Kira doll every year. And of course I never got one because oh, yeah. there, there wasn't one that existed. So, um, that's something that I've carried right through my adulthood, my love for that film. Absolutely. And I think that that explains a lot about the direction that my aesthetic went mm-hmm. because it is, so, it is so dark and it's sort of strange and left of center and nobody understood it or liked it when it came out oh I love which really you did okay so
2: I'm not alone my favorite movie growing up and I remember it was like on Netflix or something and I sat my husband and my kids down because they my husband had never seen it because he grew up very country so that was the devil movie. Yeah,
1: you would have never watched that. <laughs>
2: yeah. And I just remember sitting there, I'm like, oh, I so love this. And they're just like wide eyed, like, what the fuck are we watching right now? And I'm like, this is the best movie ever. And then they all left. And I just cons- just kept mm-hmm. watching.
0: It was going to be weirder. Originally, Jim Henson wanted it to be in entirely made up languages. Mm hmm. And they, they did it. They did a test screening for that and did not go over well. (laughs) But if you dig around on YouTube, you can see there's still some surviving footage of, um, there's like a deleted scene where the Skeksis are performing like a funeral ritual Mm -hmm. around the pile of remains that the emperor turned into. And they're speaking in this like, Skexis language that was designed for the film. So you can get a taste for it. Oh, that's awesome. I or love it so much. Yeah.
1: We well, I loved those movies as a kid because I felt like you could watch them a million times and still find something different every time you watched either one of those movies.
0: Mm-hmm. What they accomplished in terms of world building was really impressive, especially with where technology was back then. It was in fact the first film to have an entirely animatronic and puppet cast with no human characters whatsoever. Everything was built by hand, and I'm definitely one of those practical effects look looks better kind of a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. you know, I've carried different bits of that aesthetic with me into adulthood, and I still really enjoy watching those movies. But you and I, Kate, were talking about this linked uh, kind of antique awakening in Evan. Mickelson. Yes. Of obscure. I,
0: I think I'm trying to remember how this happened. I'm going to date myself now in like a major way. Um, I was on LiveJournal and there was some writer or artist or some guy that I followed and he happened to be a friend of hers and went to a Halloween party at her house. And this was maybe in somewhere between 2005 in 2006, so way before they were ever on TV or anything like that. And they had a really small website with not too much on it. But I was able to read enough about the store, Obscura Antiques and Oddities, um, to learn that they'd been open for at least a decade, and they had an established cult following with celebrity clientele and high-end designer clientele. And I guess it had just never really occurred to me before that you could express yourself that way aesthetically with antiques, because I was so used to antiques being my parents' thing, and I didn't realize that there was this whole other strange, diverse world outside of their aesthetic, which I think was very mainstream. And uh, quickly after that, I found the Morbid Anatomy Library, Mm. which at the time was a blog and a one-room pop-up at a place called Proteus Gowanus in Brooklyn. Wow. And things just sort of fell into place, I guess. I'm a very curious person, and when I get interested in something, I sort of latch onto it and suck that subject matter dry and then quickly move on to the next thing. And I'm I could always never very interested. I could never,
1: <laughs> I don't know what that's like at all. Like
2: I'm talking to the same
1: person.
0: <laughs> right. I mean, I listened to your episode and I thought, wow, like we have so much stuff in common. This is really <laughs> insane. I didn't actually have any friends that were in my age range who were interested in any of this until much later on in my adulthood. Mm-hmm. And I think perhaps, When Obscura bought their television show and raised awareness about that that area of collecting amongst uh, the general population, there are all these new collectors and new dealers popping up left and right. So, yeah, they're really I think Mike and Evan are really owed a debt that I don't know that they receive all the time anymore. No. And I
1: would. For me, it was equivalent to like a sexual awakening of I was (laughs) living in my first like first rented house I know it sounds dramatic but like when you're a weird fucking kid and you have nobody to be weird with and you just kind of have to like put it all in a box like you have to like fit in with your peers and not be over the top because it's definitely gonna get you ridiculed when I was like I remember I was we had just gotten Netflix because our we moved out of our apartment that had cable. And I had seen glimpses of this when I still lived at home when they first got their show. But my stepdad was an ass and I could never like watch TV, you know, in the living room. But I came across the show Obscura and I turned it on and I the intro is like all these old creepy antiques and all this stuff. And then they show their little shop. And I remember like looking at my husband and I was like, oh my God, these people collect the things I want to collect. Like there's a, there's a group of people somewhere in this world that also likes really weird shit that would generally get me burned and put out of town and I have to find them. I have to find these people. And I just, when you said that you went to a party with, no, I,
0: oh, well, yes, I, I suppose I did. I didn't speak to her because I was too shy. I know I come across as very brassy most of the time, but for some reason that day I felt incredibly um, nervous and I was sort of a wallflower at that party. Um, I'm I'm guessing you're referring to like the opening party for last year's Morbid Anatomy exhibition. Oh, no, I was talking about the Halloween party, but it's okay to know that you were a wallflower because I
1: would have also been the same (laughs) way. I would have just been like... There are the
0: definitely, it's definitely like 50% of the time that I can put on my Oscar Wilde hat to just do my Libra thing at a party and be chatty and charming and, and whatever. But on this particular occasion, my friends were late and I didn't know anybody. So I was just hiding in a bush basically until they arrived. Yeah. But I had seen some some guy that I followed on Live Journal. He was a friend of Evans and went to a Halloween party at her house and just posted all of these pictures uh-huh. of her home. And um, I remember one of the most interesting things was she had a child-sized coffin with a viewing portal over the face, and there was like a mama- There were mummified remains still in it, and I don't know where oh. she got it or what the background oh is God. to this piece. But she she, she has this little baby i guess
1: were you just like are you gonna adopt me (laughs) am i I doing live here now
0: i know that sounds very very creepy but to me it's kind of sweet that she has a home where she's cherished Mm -hmm. and in a way that might be nicer than her being in the ground right forgotten you know we may not know who she is but Evan has custody of her and cherishes her. And I think that that's very nice. I think I'd like to be in the home of the nice lady surrounded by beautiful things rather Mm -hmm. than in the ground. That sounds nice, right? Yeah,
1: having just incredible reverence over you all the time.
0: Yes, yes, totally. Because for
1: those of you who don't know who Evan and Mike are, like you were saying, they really are like kind of the godfathers of American Oddity collecting you know like the the cornerstone of a lot of people's reason why they follow on this journey and evan has one of the
0: largest collections of hair work in the united states she does she's been collecting for many years and she contributed to last year's exhibition on hair work at the museum Mm -hmm. which unfortunately I, i was not able to see but um My friend Courtney Lane, who was a hair work artist, also had work from her collection in that show. I have the, because I obviously couldn't go either
1: because I live in Idaho. But I bought, um, as soon as I found out that was happening, I bought the booklet that came from the exhibit and just pour over it all the time. Because I did, I have actually sitting on my desk right now, the Mark Campbell book on the hair work pattern book from the 1800s. Obviously, it's not the original, but... It's the, the reproduction of it. And you were we were talking about when you started collecting, in your early years of collecting, you wrote this interesting story about finding your first piece of like mourning and sentiment jewelry at a trade show. And I had forgotten that there was a time when mourning and sentiment or anything kind of macabre, like you said in your thing, was not put out on tables. Can you tell us a little bit about finding that jet brooch?
0: Sure. I was at a flea market in the suburbs of Boston where I've been going since I was a baby, literally. Like I have a photograph of me in a bonnet on a rug next to my parents, at this flea market. And this was the summer after I graduated high school. And uh, I was just wandering around. I was looking at a particular gentleman's table and he asked me, can I help you find anything? Are you looking for anything in particular? And I didn't actually think that he was going to have anything for me because he didn't have anything else on his table that indicated he might. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, you don't have any Victorian mourning jewelry, do you? And worthlessly he turned around and popped his trunk and he rummaged around in a box and he produced this hair work, um, not a hair work, he produced this carved jet, cameo brooch, and I got it at a very good price because it didn't have any hardware. I had to add hardware to it later. And, um, yeah, so I got a really good deal on it. It was like $20 or something like that. And I was digging around in my purse, getting my cash out. And he just said, what is this? Some kind of goth thing. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. I don't think so. I- Thank you very much. Thank you. (laughs) You're like I'll treasure it. Uh,
1: What is this? Some kind of goth thing? We need that as a sticker. What? (laughs) Some kind of goth? I know. (laughs) This is for Satan, and you're like, yes, it is. Satan loves a cameo jet brooch. He loves it.
0: I mean, you know, (laughs) well, David Bowie being one of my heroes, I deeply dislike labels and pigeonholes, so I kind of bristle if anybody calls me goth. But it's sort of like I see what you're saying, though. (laughs) <laughs> you know what I mean?
1: I see the the correlation between yes. all of these things, and I, I don't hate it, but I also stop.
0: These walls are pink, okay? Pink. That's true.
1: I do like it. I like that shade. It's, a, it's a
0: color, <laughs> a definable color. <laughs> yeah, I
1: have floral wallpaper in my kitchen, so like day-to-day when I go to work, it's all black, and then you come into my house, and it looks like... Your grandmother's home because there's just shit everywhere. Vintage, kitschy, weird stuff. So I get it. I get it. And so I want to talk about how your progression into now being a dealer. When you were first shopping for Victorian stuff, it was not very popular, was it?
0: Well, it's not popular now either. No, is it just
1: because it's on my radar? I think it's popular because I'm like, ooh.
0: Well, things like Victorian painting, Victorian objet d'art, Victorian furniture, that used to be fetching very high prices at auction. It was expensive to buy in shops. And now nobody wants it. And you're constantly hearing people disparage brown furniture or whatever. You, you see people ruining fine pieces of furniture by trying to upcycle them with milk paint. Mm-hmm. Everyone's really wanting mid-century modern, which kind of always looks like office furniture to me, no matter how fine it is. Um, even if it's something that I can appreciate aesthetically, it just doesn't resonate with me. So I don't really care if that's where the market is right now. I follow where my art is and where my aesthetic tells me to go. Yeah. Um, what was the question before I oh, just started you... ranting? <laughs> no, it's okay. Because I actually,
1: you know, Jill and I talk about the furniture thing a lot because there is nothing and you shared it on your instagram stories a couple weeks ago but nothing makes me more mad than when i see a piece of like ornate furniture that was never supposed to be shabby chic painted shabby chic Mm -hmm. like of all the things in the world you could apply paint to that's like one of the things you shouldn't because it never it doesn't fit stylistically And then I just think about the person that now has to strip the paint out of all of the carving. And it fills me with rage.
2: Well, yeah, it's like, it's something that, I mean, it's one of a kind already. Like I don't understand the need to paint over Mm -hmm. it. Yes. Sand it and restain it that I understand, but to paint it, to make it look, I don't know. I
1: just don't get it.
0: Well, I think that there's something to be said for taking pieces that are no longer usable and revivifying them and presenting them in a a new way, bringing them back to life, you know, but if you're taking a piece of furniture that was fine Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you're then destroying it by trying to turn it into something else, I think that that's just kind of gross. And I guess perhaps people need to train their eye and they don't recognize quality when they see it you know if you want to put milk paint all over a upright dresser that came out of a sears catalog from the 60s or something yeah i mean knock yourself out yeah but let's leave the. it it was never yeah it was like it was never a fine piece of furniture no it's it's a fine blank blank canvas if it's something like a late 19th century carved walnut credenza and then you cover it in paint. I just think that's sad. Yeah, let's maybe
1: don't do that. Yeah, don't touch let's it. Maybe not. Don't.
0: I would say that when I first started collecting, it wasn't really a matter of what was popular or not popular. It was a matter of what I could afford. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, the issue of money and class is something that's not discussed often enough. Mm -hmm. In the antiques community, especially where you see all of these, um, there's there's like a lot of egomaniacs around that seem really puffed up and proud about their collections. And they think that they're like the next coming of Gomez Adams or or something. And they're kind of showy. And the thing is, a person like that, they're not necessarily a better collector Mm -hmm. than the average Joe. They probably have more money spend on the collection though. Mm -hmm. So when I started, I didn't have any money. I had like a crappy job. Um, I had like a student loan to pay. I didn't have a lot of money to buy nice antiques. So I sort of accumulated whatever I could afford that was 19th century because I was just trying to surround myself with that vibe as much as I possibly could. And then as I Rest. I was able to sort of swap things out and upgrade them for things that were higher up on my wish list, I guess. And I think the longer you spend focused in a certain area of collecting, you get to realize which things are common and which things are truly really unique. Mm-hmm. So even things like, let's say, let's say palette worked hair memorials from late 19th century France. A person that lives in an area where those are not very common and hasn't seen many of them in person, but really wants one, is probably gonna be really impressed every time they, they encounter one in a shop. Mm-hmm. But if you've been staring at those objects for years and years, you realize that a lot of them look kind of the same and you, you try to find the one-off unique pieces. Um, Palette worked hair, most of those things you were given a catalog at the hair worker or the jeweler and you picked which shape you liked and they would fashion a memorial for you in that shape. So you see a lot of the same designs over and over again. That's why I tend to prefer American works a little bit better because so many of them were made at home using gimp work techniques. So when I go out and I'm looking for something to add to my collection, I'm unlikely to go and buy another palette work or another mm-hmm. hair wreath because one is very like another. I'll try to find something that's really, really weird that I just can't replace. Let's talk about the American
1: movement of the Victorian era because we had Hayden Peters on and we covered all of you know the European kind of styling and progression and market
0: Victoria. I love Hayden. He, he's such a wonderful person. And he, he's the exact, oh he's the exact opposite of the toxic and irksome personality that yes. I just alluded to. Mm-hmm. He is so passionate about what he does. He's so well educated and uh, he never makes anyone feel less than for having less or knowing less than yeah. he has. He's just excited to share and I, yeah. I loved that episode, and I think that he's, um, he's just a wonderful person and uh, such an asset to the community.
1: Well, and he genuinely wants people to learn that history in the most accessible way. Because, you know, it is very, like, there's a lot of edge lords. There's a lot of, like, people who think, like, if you want to do, like, if you want to become a dealer or you want to do this or you want to do that, like, obviously you should know all of your information before you start dealing antiques or be actively searching out a mentor or whatever. But I am on the same page of you of, like, the presumptuous, um, privileged side of collecting is disgusting to me. And I, I think that it's something that, like, our generation just needs to get rid of like, don't, it's not cute. It's not cute. It's It's not not cute. Mm -mm. Don't Don't do do that shit. Nope. And don't act like, yeah, you know, when I first got into hair work and collecting it, it was, I, I just started collecting my own stuff, but I am on the same page of you of, I've seen a lot of palette work. I've seen a lot of different representations of things. So now that I'm able to afford to buy hair pieces, I'm starting at the more interesting things rather than, just filtering a bunch of different stuff through my collection. But in doing my research on it, learning the difference between Victorian England and then kind of civil war era Victorian influence is so interesting and we didn't get to get into it in Hayden's episode. So let's, let's get into that a little bit. Let's talk about the accessibility of, uh, well, like one thing and you can correct me if I'm wrong during the civil war, it was expensive to ship a body home depending on where somebody died or, um, and then it was expensive to have a funeral and mourn. And so that's where the kind of memento mori things and different stuff started to come into play in the Americas. Am I wrong? Am I right?
0: Well, the term memento mori goes back to ancient Rome and it's really a motif in art and design that it's supposed to be a reminder that, you know, T- the clock's ticking. You're going to die eventually, maybe sooner than you think. So maybe get your shit together and smile more often and, you know, laugh about stuff and don't be so stuck up dickhead. That's mm-hmm. really what Memento Mori is. But now it's just like a hashtag on Instagram with like a, a picture of a person a holding a skull, you know, something <laughs> like that. Yeah. It's, it's So Memento Mori doesn't necessarily mean – like a morning memento. It's a separate. It's a that's separate right. I screwed the pooch a little one. bit. But oh no, I don't think so because it's used in conjunction with um, this subject matter all the time. I think it's just a, a simple misunderstanding. And if you weren't really nerdy about art history, which like how many people are right, then you, that's not something that you might know. So no biggie on on that. You. You're absolutely right that the Civil War. Ha- had a tremendous impact on the development of mourning practices in America, as Hayden alluded to. In England, it was very much um, a result of Queen Victoria's extreme take on uh, mourning customs. And the the upper classes all followed her and everyone else followed the upper classes. It's very much um, a uniquely English class phenomenon that you were looking at. Um, And the Civil War was basically the worst tragedy that we'd ever had as a country at that point. And people were simply not prepared to experience death on that scale. Um, If somebody died in the field, you may never see them again. You know, the body may never be recovered. It was actually the job of Black Union soldiers to go. They sent them out to go trawl the fields and pick up all the dead bodies that were rotting in the sun and bring them back and set up cemeteries, which is also not discussed. Sure. Um, But uh, we owe a debt to our Black uh, American soldiers for doing a lot of that unpleasant work. After the during and after the Civil War, mm-hmm. um, it was definitely very hard to get a body back. And it really fucked with people's heads because uh, Caitlin Doty talks about this a lot, the concept of the good death. Mm-hmm. The Victorians had this really concrete idea of how death should play out. It should be in a home, surrounded by people that you love. It, there should be a serene aspect to it. You should have... A man of God there to help you transition to the afterlife. The funeral arrangements were supposed to look a certain way. So now all of a sudden, you have thousands and thousands of soldiers that are dying very far from home. God knows if the body is ever going to be recovered, what state it's going to be in when you get it. How are you going to mourn for that loved one? Mm-hmm. It's sort of upended the entire worldview that people had about how this part of life should go. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of interesting to think of because we're in a similar situation now with COVID preventing people from being with their loved ones during the last moments, Mm -hmm. preventing people from gathering together to grieve Mm -hmm. in the way that we're accustomed to. And it'll be very interesting to see Uh, how we move forward together under these terrible circumstances and what this moment is going to give way to in terms of how we think about grieving and what that looks like. Going back to what I said about class in terms of 19th century mourning in the UK, where class is such a deeply embedded system, it makes you question how much of that pomp and circumstance is for the mourner and how much of it is for everybody else. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. A, a lot of these mourning customs had to do with keeping up appearances more so than tending to the needs of the mourner. Mm-hmm. If you think about Jewish mourning customs, how they cover mirrors when they said Shiva, that is a very practical thing to do that is meant for the mourner. Because you should not be considering worrying about your parents mm-hmm. when you're supposed to be having moments of prayer and reflection mm-hmm. and nurturing yourself during a, a time of grief. That sort of stuff makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Having, you know, the most expensive carriage you can find with four or eight horses and parading down the street and mm-hmm. wearing all this finery, that strikes me as mourning that's for show for other people.
1: Mm-hmm. Agreed, and that was the difference in this funeral for my grandmother. um And with the the pomp and circumstance of a regular funeral stripped away, all of all of the stuff that would have been a distraction, you know, to be like oh, and you shake hands and you do this and strangers come and whatever. So that was an interesting to have it stripped down to what a funeral kind of should be and not the, how many flowers were sent, how much this, how much that. And that is, I, you know, I've read a couple of Caitlin's books and listened to a couple of them and I've watched her YouTube videos. And it's fascinating to me because before I wanted to be a hairdresser, I wanted to be a funeral director. Ah,
0: And it all comes into place. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And uh, I, and for the same reason I'm a hairdresser of, I want to be a part of people's lives at special moments and help them. But there's no, there was no schools in Idaho at the time. I would have had to go to California, and that was not feasible. But I encourage our listeners to look up um, funeral customs and why they are the way they are in our country, because it's kind of upsetting, but it's also very interesting.
0: Well, here's another recommendation, uh, going back to the topic of Civil War customs. Highly recommend the documentary Death in the Civil War. Oh, I'm... It's a hard watch. I definitely cried during it, but I thought it was very, very informative and easy to digest. Um, There's a letter that's read out that was written by a soldier who was actually mortally wounded and he was still on his horse and he was writing this for his loved ones in his last moments. Oh
1: my God.
0: Ugly crying.
1: Uh, I'm going to have to watch that while we're home this week. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, maybe not this week while (laughs) struggling to feel better. Maybe check out like the new reboot of anime maniacs or something. (laughs) Or I'll watch the Netflix series
1: on Selena because they just put a Selena and I I was obsessed with Selena as a little girl. So I'm going to have to watch it. Okay, let's sidestep from a lot of the death talk. Um, Let's talk about we talked a little bit about like budgeting with collecting. And you've, so I'm always interested in the dealer side of antiques because I feel like it's like you collect, you collect, you collect, and then you're like, well, time to start just fucking selling this stuff because I have a lot of it. You are just coming up or you just passed your one year as a dealer, correct?
0: Well, not as a dealer, but as a full-time dealer, it had been my side hustle for many years okay, and I didn't really think that I was ever going to reach a place where it would be enough but I can't even explain to you how grateful I am that I managed to achieve that because I was not happy in the jobs that I had at all. What did you do before you were dealing antiques? I fell into retail by accident. So I was always uh, working in like high end resale or high end retail. And I don't know if you've ever worked in that kind of environment, but customers are not often very nice. <laughs> no. And, uh, you know, anyone who's had to work more than five minutes in customer service can tell you that you're basically just a punching bag and you, you have to take a lot of rudeness and pettiness and nonsense from customers. You just have to smile mm. and take it basically. Well, and I can't imagine being in like the higher end resale
1: market. The types of people and characters you would deal with in that. So, I
0: once had to, sh- I once had to demonstrate to a woman who is several years older than me in like a two thousand dollar Burberry coat how to take off her own shoe. What? So that's sort of where we're at in terms of um, testing my patience. <laughs> oh my. How does that even happen? Well, I guess she'd never worn boots before.
2: Oh my God. I mean, I can understand because of taking care of like head trauma patients that need to be retaught <laughs> but to have never done I can't. I
0: <sighs> honestly some customer bases are nicer than others. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy to say that my own customer base is entirely Karen free.
1: Nice. Um, <laughs> we love that.
0: Especially, especially this year when there have been so many delays and uncertainties regarding the shipping situation. Everyone has been so patient and kind and thoughtful. No one ever yells at me. Even if something goes wrong, like, oh, my package fell off the map. Can you help me? Everyone's really, really kind. So um, I'm very grateful for that. Very, very grateful for that. No, that's um, but yeah. I just, I think to a large extent, the manager decides the tone of the customer base. So mm-hmm. if you allow the customers to sort of dog walk your staff, mm-hmm. then that's the environment that your store is going to have. I was always more happy when I was the one in charge when I was managing. So I guess that should have been a clue that I should have tried to make this (laughs) leap a little sooner than I did. Mm -hmm. But it's very, very hard uh, to make that leap without a safety net in the current financial environment that we're in. And I just happened to strike incredible good fortune that I took those steps before COVID happened. So,
1: Mm. And yeah, you were able to fully commit before Mm -hmm. shit hit the fan.
0: Mm-hmm. I wish I I had done it sooner and I wish I had been more confident. So mm. That's what I would say to anyone else that wants to spread their wings and embark on a passion project full time. You you've just got to believe in yourself. It sounds corny, but it's it's actually true. If you don't try and you don't commit to it fully, it's going to be a side hustle forever.
1: You know, it's funny that you say that Jill and I are looking at each other as you're saying that because this is, you know, we we are currently having this kind of conversation with each other. It's just so fucking funny when stuff like this happens, because it's almost like the universe going, hey, remember what I said to you about not being a dipshit here? And then it's like another person as a mouthpiece of the same thing we're feeling. So it's just nice. Thank Thank you. For you. So thanks for saying that. That was kind of the yeah, kick. That yeah. totally gave me. No, absolutely. I was just like, all right, I, I hear you. I hear you. I'm hear listening. You.
0: And, you know, frankly, a lot of us, especially in this age range, we are creative people. Maybe we're not the type to have gone to college for a set career mm-hmm. like law school or mm-hmm. I don't know, even nursing, something like that, where you have a clear outlook, a clear set of steps, a clear end goal. It's all very cut and dry. I know a lot of people that are creative in some way or another. And the number of us that have been able to harness those creative skills to figure out something where we can work on our own is really impressive. And I I don't think it's something that um, people give each other enough credit for, because it's really amazing we're the ones that are thriving right now in this miserable situation. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. It's really, I think just because of what our generation has been through specifically, you know, over our, our lifetimes and childhoods and trauma and things like that, we really find the best of ourselves at the bottom of the barrel. Like
0: we, we don't have any other choice. No, because, Mm -hmm. Mm -mm.
1: Like it was the you know, only thing that saved us with the show during this pandemic is the fact that everybody was at home. Like we could talk to whoever we want right now because everybody's at home and everybody wants to talk because everybody's at home. <laughs> so We're it's... a
0: generation that is really good at making lemonade out of lemons,
1: mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Or finding a recipe to make
0: lemonade out of cherries. Oh. Like just being like, okay, well I have this. Yeah. Let's Pretty make it. sure. That's what boomers refer to as pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. Oh, so. right. Yes. If we would just get, you know, a real job and do what
1: we're supposed to do, we wouldn't hate ourselves.
0: I know. Supposed, like, I do have supposed a to job. do what? Fuck off. Yeah. Out of here.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fuck yeah. off. Yeah. Sharon. Yeah. Okay. So I want to talk about um, when you realized that you wanted to start doing this full, time what are some of the things you learned about dealing antiques that were surprising to you like on your journey to making it full-time like was it a lot of just like self-doubt stuff or like weird internal dialogue or did you just like go all the way in and like this is going to work what was that like for you like this decision making to do it all the time
0: well my first job out of college was at buffalo exchange if you can believe that do you guys have buffalo exchange out where you guys are i wish we did or, we have it a, i had one in boise oh is there one in boise okay so um it's not exactly the most positive company culture that i've ever encountered but i will say that they give you a lot of um boots on the ground education on how a business is run so you'll have meetings once a month where they'll show you like an entire financial report and oh. it'll be like well this is how much stuff we sold this is how much stuff that we bought for the store this is how much that we paid for it and this is our profit margin and these are all of our expenses and this is what's left over that's pure profit and like this is where we were goal to be this is where we ended up this is why we were under or over wow. where we were expected to be And, um, so that provided a really great foundation for me in terms of thinking about how, how business should look on like the most basic level Mm -hmm. in terms of what you're spending, what your profit margin is, um, what kind of markdown cadence do you expect and what are you going to do to bounce back if you're over or under a certain, a certain, um, margin, Wow. So that was really helpful. And just being up at the buy counter was really good experience because you, I don't know if this has changed, but you don't have access to a computer where you can look anything up. That's why they try to hire people that just really like clothes and are obsessed with clothes because you have to be able to look at something and say, okay, well, that came from Urban Outfitters from like four years ago and no one's going to wear that cut right now. So I'm going to pass on it. But I am going to take this Kate Spade dress, which probably retailed for about five hundred dollars, and we can maybe sell it for sixty. You mm-hmm. have to have all that in your Whoa. in your head. Thankfully, I'm just a person that has um, a good memory. That's just one of my superpowers, I guess. I have a good memory, mm-hmm. um, and you have to go really, really fast because there's like a line of perturbed people with trash bags full of clothes, and you've got to process as many as you can and make on-the-spot decisions about what you're going to buy, what you're not, and what you're going to price it for. Wow! There's a high margin for error in that store because they don't do markdowns. The stuff sits on the floor for like, I don't know, eight weeks or something. And then if it doesn't sell, it goes 50% off. And if it still doesn't sell, it gets shipped to an outlet store in Arizona. So, yeah. So that was a really good foundation. And then later when I was given my own consignment store, this time in much higher end clothes. And that's sort of where I began to have more confidence in my abilities. Because like I said, I was always a very creative person in school. And I never thought that I could do anything business oriented. Um, I was like good at math until I got to high school and like the pre-calculus stuff and there, there would always be a, a point after a couple weeks where I would just totally stop understanding stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, in hindsight, in hindsight, I think it's just that my teacher was terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, because I run my own business and I have run other businesses, and I have not failed at those things, so I can't be that bad at math. <laughs> There's got to be some skills, right? Some place that yeah. I'm calling upon the consign. Well, the consignment store that I worked at had no manager for like three months and it was it had been in the red for three months. So I totally had to rip out the entire product mix and re sort of build it back
1: from the ground up. Wow. So
0: I, at a certain point I figured, well I if I can do this for somebody else's business, why can't I just do it for my own business? Mm -hmm. Because clearly I'm not happy unless I'm calling all the shots on everything Mm -hmm. in terms of aesthetics, in terms of how kind we are to our customers, in terms of boundaries that we establish Mm -hmm. between our customer base and our staff. And, you know, allowing parents to run rampant and things like that. Yeah. So I think those were the set, that was the set of experiences that made me confident enough to take the leap. No, that's incredible because I think
1: because of just like how regular education is set up, you know, we have this tendency to believe that in the only people that have the innate skills to run something successfully was because of luck. Right. And not because, well, I think it helps for sure. It totally helps, but it also is we, we forget that we all of our life experiences and different stuff like that builds upon itself And it's, you know, kind of evergreen into what you could do successfully where we've always been taught that you find your career at 19 or 20 years old and then that's just what you do until you die and you shouldn't change. It's so
0: dumb. Mm -hmm. You don't know dick about nothing when Mm -hmm. you are 19 years old. And if you're 19 and you're, you're listening to me right now. That's the truth. Yeah. And I know that you think that you're smarter than everybody else, but you're not. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, you really, you don't know anything. And then the older you get the the importance of being truly happy in what you're doing is the most important part of what you should be doing.
0: When I was 19, I wanted to be a dramaturg. So that's what I was going to school for. I was very into theater in a very like serious business, academic, artsy fartsy kind of a way and um that's not a job that has a lot of openings. <laughs> yeah. Like even like I don't even think a lot of people know what that is, but basically you're like an in-house theater scholar. Oh wow. And yeah, that's real niche. You read a lot of plays, you know a lot about the history of theater and uh the dramatic arts. And you sort of educate the company about the world of the play that you're working on. So if you were doing the Crucible, you'd provide a lot of educational material about Arthur Miller and what are the cultural circumstances that he's responding to that led him to to write that play? What about the witch trials? What was life like back in Puritan New England? How does all of this stuff connect to what we're doing right now? Are the decisions that the directing team is making honoring the intention of the playwright all oh, those sorts cool. of questions. And um, you also do a lot of audience outreach. So you provide educational materials about the historical background of the play and why we're doing it to the audience. Um, you help read and edit new work and decide what a, um, a theater company season is going to look like. Wow. So very academic, very egg And I think that I was drawn to that because I loved theater. And I, I'm a very curious person. So I like reading up about all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Like how I told you that when I found Velvet Gold Mine and it, which was so rich in references to music history, art history, Mm -hmm. literature, I looked up every single thing that I could find. And I learned so much just from that one starting point, you know, it sent me in a million different directions, mm-hmm. the Jean Genet, the uh, French playwright and oh. novelist whose birthday it is today, by the oh, way, happy birthday. or the glam rock movement, David Bowie and all of his work, mm-hmm. um, Oscar Wilde, all of these different things came out of this one, this one movie, you know? So I think that I was excited about the prospect of a career in which I could get really excited about stuff and share that excitement with other people and help other people learn in a practical sense. Like if you go out in the real world, a lot of companies just don't need a dramaturg. Um, but or you can't, uh, can't afford a dramaturg. Right. Right. And I, I did it a couple of times. I think frankly, the productions that I worked on in college, I was uh, spoiled by my teacher, who involved me very much in all aspects of the production. And I felt like I was engaged in a meaningful way. In the real world, I felt like I was the person who wasn't really connected to anyone else in the cast, but who was assigned to look up all of the weird references in the play on Wikipedia because everyone else was too lazy to do basic work. (laughs) So I just didn't really like it. And I think that you I don't think
1: you give yourself enough credit. I think that you have created your own version of that in the antique world, especially in the things that you deal in, you know, with the Victoriana stuff, because I would say you're you're just as high up there as Hayden is like knowledge wise of what you're dealing in. You know, there's a lot of people that deal in. Um, the, The 19th century, the 18th century, and they deal in those things because it's interesting, but it stops there for them. Where you and Hayden both like live, eat and breathe the history of these items and therein lies the importance of them. And it comes across directly on like your your shop and the things you've been a part of of the first important bit to you is always the history and the facts and the why's. And then it's like, oh, also they made this. Look at this directly links to it. You are teaching the world in a way the importance of this pomp and circumstance while being so accessible to everybody. And I, I think that's, that's why I've fallen in love with your content is because it's not pretentious fine art and antiques and different things like that. It's very much meant to be accessible to everybody. So don't don't cut yourself short on that aspect.
0: That is legit the nicest shit that anyone has said to me regarding this business. And I'm a working class Italian girl and a triple air sign. So I'm not often speechless, but that rendered me speechless. I don't even know what to say to that. Besides, thank you. That's well, really kind. I do love a pretentious moment, though. Yeah, I'll be real. Well, we, have to, I, we I all do love, love that. I love a touch of that mm-hmm. um, and I can be very sassy.
1: <laughs> we all have to be. I am also of that same. Um, I am an Aries and then an Aries and then I think I do not I, I never can remember the third one because the double Aries is always like, Oh, duh. Yeah, that's you for sure. But I, uh, I'm a part of like an antique study group and there's a, like half of the women are kind of, pretentious and a little like antiques are only for xyz so it's always you know with each interview we do and we we sit down and we talk to people and it the thing that i was hoping would happen is happening of each interview has this beautiful common thread of curiosity and humanity and everybody thinking that they're the odd man out and that that's not generally the case. We've just been told by the shitty people in our lives that we're the odd man out when really, you know, you turn outward and find your people that also like really weird stuff or really cool stuff or the ones you can like nerd out with. And it's every time it happens, I'm like struck with this like humble moment of when people tell you when you're 16 years old, that you'll find your people and you're just like, yeah, whatever. And then when it finally happens, you're like, oh, these guys.
0: I wasn't exactly happy at that age either. I mean, I was in a suburban Catholic school full of bros who were, you know, Philistines, more or less. Very antagonistic to anything outside the norm, especially if it was artistic. We actually, while I was there, the school eliminated the requirement to take an arts related class in order to fund like a girls lacrosse team or some shit like that. And <clears throat> a few of us who were outraged about this, we started a small campaign and we put posters up on our lars that said the arts matter. People would deface them or Ugh. tear them down. So that's like the, the kind of environment that I'm used to to being in. I, I just mm-hmm. sort of presume that's where everybody's at in terms yeah. of their, their feelings about Things that are important to me, I guess you Mm -hmm. could say. And it's I I didn't um acquire any of these interests because I wanted to be perceived as highfalutin or anything like that. Mm -hmm. My heart just went where it went. I could I could have easily fallen in love with NASCAR or something instead, Mm -hmm. you know, that has no associations of pretension attached to it at all. But I'm sure that there are people out there that they know the names of all the cars and all the specs on the cars and all the drivers and all of like the best drivers of all time. And they're, those people are really smart about the thing that they're passionate about. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. And this just happens to be the thing that I'm passionate about. Um, and it's, it can be very isolating in a way because it's perceived as being, Oh, well that's like too stuffy or that's too intellectual or mm-hmm. That's that's bogus. I don't know that people always realize that it's from the heart.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So it can be hard to find those friends um, that also enjoy those things and resonate with those things.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, not only do you resonate with those things, but you're willing to teach. Like you and Hayden gave off that very like, like I know very little about Victorian or any of the morning jewelry or anything like that. But I've learned so much because you're willing to take the time to teach Mm -hmm. and you're just not like taking me at face value like, oh, you're just here, but you're generally like I'm like so like just sitting here like, okay, wait a minute, I have to make a comment, (laughs) but it's like I want you to keep talking because the topics you have are just so like, like you can just grasp it and see your passion through it. Mm
0: -hmm. That's so nice. (laughs) I don't, I don't even... I'm bad at accepting compliments. I just go a little bit weird. I'm I just like, aw. I know. I'm
2: just like, oh, uh, thank
1: you. Yeah. Make a weird <laughs> fart noise with your mouth. You're just like, ah, okay. All right. Well, look at... You don't really mean that. Look, I'm actually a dipshit. That's my default of just like, no, I'm actually...
0: I'm, I'm actually a giant
1: doofus. <laughs> Confirmed. Confirmed doofus. Check yeah, out my it's, it's true. IMDB doofus page because that's just <laughs> who I am. Well, and where do like speaking on being a dealer and uh, just the different things of like what you have access to, how how do you find the stuff you resell? Because you don't do like your shop isn't always stocked, correct? You do like these like timed Re-stocks.
0: Oh no, the shop is always stocked, honey. Is it always, it's always stocked? It's always stocked, honey.
1: <laughs> Ready to go. I, I would say,
0: I would say at any given time, there's at least 200 items available for sale, and I do updates every two weeks. Okay. I was hoping to transition this year to doing them every week, but I'm sticking to the bi weekly updates just because the situation is so volatile. Mm. Um, like the ability to acquire new stock could be taken out from under me at any time. It was very hard to keep stock um, during the initial shutdown. And the entire year I've basically been, I've had it in the back of my mind that another one is surely due. So I've got to make sure that I'm like a little squirrel with Mm -hmm. my pile of nuts hoarding here, Mm -hmm. that I've got enough to sustain me. And I know everyone else in in the industry is in, in the same boat thankfully my business was already online so mm-hmm. i was not as badly affected as people who just brick and mortar or they just do clean outs or something that they weren't able to quickly transition to another sure so i'm i'm very very blessed in that regard
1: where where are you finding stuff right now like what does that look like Every,
0: I... everywhere you find it everywhere that's the people comment. always well. People always ask me that. It's like, well, where do you think that it comes from? I I didn't get it at Trader Joe's <laughs> when I went out to buy hummus <laughs> and a new orchid, right. You know where are the places where people find things? Estate sales, flea markets, thrift stores, antique stores, yard sales, all all of those things. That's think, where the stuff comes from.
1: Right. There's think, not
0: like a mystical place oh, that is described on Ancient Aliens good. where, I like, you know, know, you say an incantation <laughs> and a door opens up <laughs> to all of the antiques.
2: I wish that would be, it'd be easier over here to find yeah.
1: stuff. I think that's why I always ask that question. Cause to me, it just seems so mystical. Like I'm like, where the fuck are people finding all this cool stuff?
0: Well, the yeah. thing is, if you have the eye and you just look constantly, you're like a shark. You're always on the move. Mm-hmm. You will, you can put me in any store and I will walk out with something guaranteed.
1: Oh my God. Can and... we do that one day when quarantine's over? We can get together yes! and just go and be like, hey, we'll follow you. You'll be like our antique bloodhound.
0: I thought about doing that, about doing some sort of like um, like a live stream or something, like follow me through one of my favorite haunts and we'll see I'm here what for kind it. of shit we'll, we'll yeah, dig up. Too. I'm all for that. Yeah, that's, if that's something that people want to see, maybe they can ping me and yeah. try and persuade me to, to do it um, because that sounds like fun. I watch those um, English antique reality shows. They have a lot over there. We just have Antiques Roadshow and, like, mm-hmm. The Pickers Show. And, but they have one called Antiques Road Trip, and they have, like, two dealers, and they just go driving around a particular town, and they go in and they try and find something to flip at auction. And, like, whoever makes the most money at auction wins, and the oh, money cool. to a charity. And I bet I'd be really good on that show. yeah. They need to find you and sign you up for it. I'm the kind of person that, like, I'll open the door to a shop and the shop owner will say, hello, how's it going today? And I'll be like, I'm great. Can I see that thing in the bottom of the case right there? Like, my eye goes instantly right to what I want.
1: No, I was saying collectively from your parents through osmosis. You've got their years of collecting already tacked on, like an extra credit is where you're at. Got At it.
0: this point, I'm quicker than my mother, and she comments on it all the time. She's like, oh, well, I would have picked that up if I had seen it first, but you were faster than me.
1: You're like, yeah, I know. I got You're my competition, ma.
0: <laughs> no competition with anybody. There's room for everybody. Oh, I love that. For real. Oh, that's so good. I, I love, love hearing that. that. It's the truth. Well, people ask me how I feel about the fact that other people sell things that are similar to mine. And I'm like, I know I made friends with them all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you want to come hang out with us and talk (laughs) shit on a Tuesday? (laughs) Uh,
1: Yes. Well, the thing too is, you know, like one person can't sell every bit of uh, Victorian ephemera. You know, one person can't just have all of it. And I love seeing the different spin people put on like their uh, aspect of a certain genre of antiques, you know, like there's people like in the mid century modern world that, that only sell stuff. That's like brass animals and wicker furniture and different stuff like that. And then, you have the people that just do like psychedelic stuff or you have the clothing resellers that only do stuff from the nineties. I just, I love that it's constantly like another niche, another niche, another niche. Cause it's for everybody.
0: Well, not necessarily another niche, but I love curation that comes from the heart mm-hmm. and from a person's own personality. So even though my colleagues and I all have similar Things that we collect, and we have a lot of overlap in our interests. I can be scrolling through Instagram, and I'll know that it's my friend's photo because of the way they curate and the way that they photograph things. Mm-hmm. I recognize their aesthetic. It's like recognizing a favorite song when it comes on the radio, and you just know instantly yeah. oh, that's da 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 da. We always say
1: on the show, like, just find, yeah, find something that speaks to you that you think is cool, because your collection will never mean the same to somebody else as it does to you. And if you have stuff in your home that doesn't mean anything to you, it's the same as having an Ikea bookshelf that everybody has. Like, yeah, relatively, it's a cool piece, but does it speak to you?
0: It was like that episode of Absolutely Fabulous, where Eddie goes to that client art gallery, and she's just, like, rifling off lists of things that were popular at the time mm-hmm. and she's like well it all looks like bollocks so it has to be worth something <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think
1: if you if you have that mentality when you're going into it like people are going to come to your home and they're going to start asking you about your cool stuff and then you don't know fuck all about it you're just like oh yeah this old thing this amputation saw an embalming kit that I got at Trader Joe's oh my god could you imagine <laughs> if Trader Joe's <laughs> Okay, so I want to get to speaking of curating nonsense. um, We do this thing at the end of every show called the estate sale walkthrough. Have you listened to one of them? I have. So I have. For those of you that are new to the episodes, um, the estate sale walkthrough is completely made up. It has no weight in a real estate sale. I would definitely probably die if I walked into an estate sale and these things started to materialize. I'd quit the show and move to Mars because it's my own punishment.
2: (laughs) Yes, it would be your punishment because I hate these.
1: Yeah. Sorry. So, um, each estate sale is completely made up, manufactured, fun, imaginary nonsense. The only catch is you can only pick one or the other thing, like one of the items listed. And if you think your favorite thing's there, it's most definitely there. Like if you go, God, I'd buy that if it was, it's definitely that. Don't second guess it, it's there. Okay. <laughs> All right. So today we're doing a little mix of like what we did in Hayden's episode with time traveling and also just kind of bopping around to different eras because why not? I write the show and the rules. So fight me. Okay. So today's estate Out, we're going, we're doing a little bit of time traveling. We're going from flea markets to shops and coast to coast. Our first stop today is in a seaside town known for its antique shops and markets. The first place we stumble into is just a quaint little shop run by some old people. And along the beams of the shop are various bits of clothing that are hanging. But it's not just any type of clothing. They're baptismal gowns for children. There is a baptism gown from the Victorian era or a baptismal gown from the Edwardian era. So similar, but they have their differences. Which one are you going with?
0: I guess the Edwardian one, because I was baptized in one and it's hanging on my wall right now.
1: What are the odds? <laughs> I thought for
0: sure that would be well sure. Well the the Edwardian ones turn out to be a little bit more elaborate. Yeah. And as we've established, I'm a little bit on the <laughs> extravagant side. So I'll have one. to send you I'll have to send you a picture of that. Yeah, and my do. mom. My mom yeah. got married in an Edwardian white dress, and um, she baptized me in uh, in an anti christening gown, which wow. I still have. Wow, that is amazing. I'm going yep. also Edwardian. I was, I was predestined to be like this, <laughs>
1: just to be extra from the right. beginning. <laughs>
0: yeah. Oh, this
1: old thing. This is what it was baptized in. This.
0: <laughs> she also. She says she used to. Um, listen to harp music on a cassette tape when she was pregnant with me and she used to take baths to relax and i think that that also explains a lot about how really? i turned out you know Love that
1: so there's much.
0: something to be said i know that's about so that. ridiculous that's
1: she did so funny. good she did <laughs> good we like all of it top <laughs> to bottom
2: you knew what she was doing
1: jill which one are you picking
2: um i'm gonna go victor Orion, just because nobody picked it.
1: Well, and I think it leads a little <laughs> bit more to your aesthetic too. It does. Jill's not as extra as the two of us are. She has her extras bits.
2: I do. I like to surprise everybody with my extras. She
1: does every time. All right. The next one, we're going to hop in our time machine. We're going back to the 18th and 19th century. We're kind of popping around the two. And you have, Kate, this is specifically for you. You have your choice of buying a first edition of one of these books mentioned the first day it's being sold. You have Bram Stoker's Dracula, Oscar Wilde's, the picture of Doreen Gray or Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. What?
0: F- oh, I'm going with my man Wilde. There's no question about that. I, mean, I know he and Stoker were friends. Very nice. Um, but no, to Oscar.
1: All right. All right. You can't cheat I tried, on. I tried to throw a, a wrench in.
0: Yeah, I didn't. I realize that people may presume that I'm a little bit spookier than I actually am because of the predominant color in my wardrobe. But um, I get the same. I'm not huge on Dracula. No, I get the same. I, I own a couple copies. It's interesting. It's an important work in the development of horror. Everyone should read it if they want to have an understanding of that sort of stuff. hmm. Um, but it's not, like, my favorite book or anything right. like that. Right. I think Frankenstein's a much better book. That's the one I would pick.
1: For sure, I would pick Frankenstein.
0: She was just such an interesting person and lately has been getting more credit for how groundbreaking she actually is. Yeah. Particularly if you consider that how dominated the horror and sci-fi genres are mm-hmm. by white hat men.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and even I mean, it's to the to the case of people always thinking that like Frankenstein isn't the monster; it's the doctor. Like, it's, it's true. The it, doctor is the monster in that situation. Yeah. So that's that's the one I would pick, Jill.
0: Um, I'll just go Dracula. Why not? Just
1: get the third one.
2: I mean, it's the first one, so I can't.
1: You gotta. Well, and it's, yeah, I mean, the symbolism and stuff of what it's led to horror-wise yeah. makes it interesting to me, but not necessarily the subject matter. Don't at me. Don't fight me if you're a huge Dracula stan, okay? I didn't mean it. Mad at it. <laughs> you know? All right, next you
2: know, we up. We have got our flavors.
1: Yes. We pop into another dealer's booth, and this time we are pouring over the finer things in their booth, with their jewelry specifically. There is a taxidermied hummingbird brooch a moss agate or landscape agate brooch or an egyptian revival scarab ring which one do you take home
0: how did you know that i have long coveted some victorian hummingbird jewelry just a while that's like that's like a bucket list item for me Probably. highly illegal unfortunately yeah. Yeah. yeah um for good reasons yeah By and large, I I like these animals much better when they're alive, which Mm -hmm. is what that occurred to me the last time I visited the Museum of Natural History in New York. I'm like, this is, I'm sadder looking at all this than I expected to be Mm -hmm. when I walked in here. (laughs) I wish all these animals were alive. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. But no, that jewelry is fascinating Mm -hmm. and very beautiful and just weird. Yeah. I do love Egyptian revival stuff. For sure, but I wouldn't want a ring. I'd want like a really big Ooh, scarab,
1: yeah, um,
0: oh, yeah, something like a necklace that was really, really big, where like the wings just sort of mm-hmm. spread across your collarbones. Yeah, oh,
1: gorgeous. That would
0: be dope. That would mm-hmm. be dope. Yeah,
1: yeah. I'm definitely picking the hummingbird brooch for the. Obviously, it's legal in this sense of owning this antiquity, but it's just too cool to pass up. I'm definitely going with the brooch yeah i think i'm gonna go with the egyptian the ring you're a ring gal
2: i am a ring gal i love me a good ring
1: and you're going with the brooch kate the hummingbird brooch? oh absolutely yeah you can't walk away from that
0: scottish agate is pretty it's a dime a dozen mm-hmm. but it i is... like the uh the banded agate for scottish jewelry mm-hmm. it's black and white it's very very pretty very yeah. simple And weirdly modern looking. Yeah, especially for the
1: time that it was produced. I love stuff that's timeless like that. And you could really wear it at any era. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Miss Kate, where can our listeners
0: find all your goodies? Where can they find your stuff? You can find my things at rosesandrueantiques.com. And I'm also on Instagram at rosesandrewantiques. And we will of course have, as we always
1: do, all of your shops listed on our website and our Instagram. And I just have to thank you again for sitting down with us today. I hope we get the chance to sit down with you again in the future for another delicious evening of Delling. I would love to sit down and have you on for an art centered episode. Because we didn't get into your love of fine art today. And I would love to dive into that because it's that would be cool. Something that I it's this thing of I've you know, we talked about the uh, the easiness of collecting palette work. I feel like that's where my tastes are fine art wise. I'm in the palette work stage of fine art of where I see something beautiful and I'm like, yes, please. But it's like <laughs> a reprint that everybody had.
0: You should still buy it. Yes. Buy that thing if it makes you happy. Yes. Lead with your heart. Remember? I know I will. I will, mom.
1: But I'd love to we'd love to have you back on to talk about yes, more of the, sure. the fine art world if you'd have us again.
0: That sounds fun. All right.
1: Well, thank you so much for sitting down with us again today. I'm gonna to say that until I'm blue in the face because uh, every time somebody chooses to spend an hour and a half with us, I'm just tickled pink. Yes. yes so yes. thank you.
2: Thank you so much. Yes, thank you.
1: As always, stay tuned for Kate's Curio Corner where we dive a little bit deeper into some of the items we talk about in today's episode. I was so excited to finally sit down with her. You know, she was on our list for a long time of people to mm-hmm. reach out to and just like finding the right moment to reach out because that's how usually we book everybody is like, Oh, that now's the time we sit down. Yeah. Like
2: again. we know the, like we get a feeling like, okay, now it is your time. It is your turn now.
1: And you know, we've had a, a couple of those episodes where it completely shifts our collection and our, our eyes on collecting. Mm -hmm. And I never, I never really understood the appeal of fine art for fine art and just art in general. And then after talking to her and then doing the curio corner now, I have this like new door that's opened up interest wise.
2: Yeah. And see, I have always been a fan of fine art and that's one of the first things I usually go to at an estate. So as I look at the artwork that they have, um, but no, she was, and she was so fascinating. Yeah. So full of history, so full of information. Like, yeah, it was like, I don't know. She had such, um, I don't like the like a persona amongst her that it was just so hard not to stare. Super, like it's a good thing we yeah. were on the video because I was like, stop staring at her. That's getting awkward <laughs> for everybody. She
1: around. was <laughs> in like uh, in the best way, intoxicating. She and captivating. was,
2: yeah, so much,
1: and, and she, yeah, it was very cute. I got um, you know, spell check helps us write the the show notes and all that stuff, and I got a text from her, and she was just like. I'm in love with her. She is so awesome. And I I can't wait for when we can meet her in person and I can just have her teach us about fine art. We'd love to have her back on to have an art-centric type episode. Oh,
2: my God. I would love that so
1: much. And we talked about a lot of, at the beginning of her episode, she kind of spitballs, these four or five different styles. Mm-hmm. And so Jill and I are going to break them down at the very basic bits Super of what they Super basic,
2: are. guys, because...
1: <laughs> There's a lot. You could really... I went down a rabbit hole of them yesterday. And
2: you know what? These styles, too, it's really hard to break them down, basically, because... Mm-hmm. There's nothing basic about them.
1: No, and you know she said during the episode that they all link together, mm-hmm. and they very much do. So we tried they to put do. them in as as best of order chronologically as we could. Right. <laughs> we tried hard, guys. Just know, <laughs> doing our best. <laughs> and she spoke about that. Like um, she spoke about the different types of aesthetics in the beginning, and one of them was one that mm-hmm. her mother collects. Which was, yeah. um,
2: which was the shaker style, right. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's so yeah, and it's shaker style is one of those things I either love it or I hate it.
1: Right. I remember my mom always referred. I feel like, and maybe it's not. I'll Google it while you're reading it. But I feel like shaker and mission style are very close together.
2: Yeah, and I think that's why I always would get it confused between yes. the two. But so we found this on uh, Vermontwoodsstudio.com. And it basically just says Shaker style furniture is characterized by clean lines, tapered legs, and minimalist designs. Originally designed in the late 1700s by followers of the religious group, the Shaking Quakers, Shaker furniture. Has become a staple in interior design known for being timeless and elegant.
1: And it is beautiful. Okay, so I Googled it really quick here on the fly. <laughs> and um, these are just from like there's the San Francisco Gate Home Guides. Mm-hmm. So it says the shaker style which came to America from Central Europe in 1774 and settled in New York, the Shakers. Mission style, on the other hand, began as an American interpretation of the arts and craft style of Victorian England. Mm. So influenced by, but not the same.
2: Which makes sense. Yes. Taking the time period.
1: Yeah. And then the next thing we talked about, um, she mentioned this and I had to like pause when I was listening back to be like, what the fuck was that? So the pre-Raphaelites. So this was, this is from tate.org.uk and the pre-Raphaelites were like 1848, the mid 1800s, the pre-Raphaelites, they were a secret society of young artists and one writer founded in London in 1848. And they were mostly opposed to like the Royal Academy's promotion of ideal and exemplified in the work of Raphael, which was pretty simple. And um, it was a kind of like they were marginalizing is the right word, but they were making things look much better than they actually were. Mm hmm. And the the principal members were William Holman Hunt, John Everett Millay, and Dante Gabriel Rossetti. And after initial heavy opposition, the pre-Raphaelites became highly influential with a second phase of movement from about 1860. And they inspired particularly by the work of Rossetti, making major contributions to symbolism. And one of the things that I was I was watching a YouTube video about the pre-Raphaelites, and there was... um an art historian speaking about them. And she was talking about the the Raphael area era and how it was very um it was made to look like things were a lot better. So they were like revering to the holy family, like Mary and Joseph and Jesus. Right. Painted very idealistically and beautifully and kind of like chubby and happy and wealthy. And mm-hmm. then the Raphaelites, they had the pre Raphaelites, they painted an image that had Joseph working as a carpenter and they had a grocer come in so they could study his anatomy to see that how a working man's body mm-hmm. would have looked to depict Joseph as a carpenter. And Mary is who she would have been and Jesus and all of these different things is what it's, what it actually would have been historically speaking. And, it, that really pissed off a lot of people because they were like, how oh, dare you?
2: Yeah, because why would you make them all look like they're from the working class? How
1: dare you? <laughs> so uh, that was very interesting to see. And the Pre-Raphaelites also, when they were creating art, it would take them like six months to a year to finish a piece because they painted everything in the foreground and the background. So if there was somebody laying in the middle, they would um, and refer back to... Um, laura lee's episode about art too with the concept of painting these mm-hmm. different things and they talk about how the pre-raphaelites would play like paint individual pieces of grass all the way to the very front of the painting yeah
2: because they wanted you to look at the whole thing mm. they didn't want you to see the one main character and nothing else
1: yeah and they wanted each each piece of the painting to tell its own story i mean it was just it was magical yes.
2: Um, and I went to – so I went to the uh, Smithsonian Museum of Fine Arts in D.C. one time. It, I was there forever.
1: Uh,
2: I It was like – I was in like a candy store. I would stare forever because they were so detailed. And like every little corner had something different. And you, you literally had to stand there and look at it for a while to get it all in. Uh,
1: I didn't know this about you. I knew you loved art, but I didn't know that you – we're like this deep into it and I'm in love with it.
2: Yeah. I, um, yeah, I, I love it. It, is, it hasn't come out in a long time. Cause I've been busy with nursing and everything, but
1: now we get a, now we know Jill's thing now
2: guys. I- <laughs> we got it. Yeah. I know my husband, if he goes to anything with art in it, he's like, are you done? Can we go? I love like, because he had a meeting, and he's like, "Do you want to just meet up later?" And I was like, "Yeah, if I'm done." And he called me. I was like, "Oh, I'm still like in the first part.
1: <laughs> you like, you're gonna have to just, go get dinner. I'm not done yet." I was yet. like,
2: "Just go do whatever you need to do, because I'm
1: fine." I'll get an Uber home when the museum closes. I'll be. Done. It was
2: so hard at the gift store too because I was trying to find something to take, and I was just like, "Oh my god, look at this book! Look at this oh. book!" I had like five books in my hands, and I was like, "I can't take all these home."
1: Yeah, because it really, I mean, it's its a vast and deep rabbit hole to fall down.
2: It is because there's so many techniques out there, so many different ways that people see art and experience art and show their art. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny, too, because some people will look at something and they're like, I don't see anything. And another person can see, like, this whole emotion. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love about it. Like, it's different for everybody.
1: One of my um, favorite memories of something like that that happened was I was visiting Baby Darrington in L.A. And she had this big abstract painting that one of her friends had done for her. And I remember looking at it and being like, oh, that's great. And then I remember her dad looking at it and having a completely different experience with the piece. Mm -hmm. And what he saw from it and what he, because he's just, he's one of those people that knows everything a little bit about everything and a lot about a lot of things. And so watching him break down the abstract painting on what, what her friend was actually trying to depict was really, really cool. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I mean, yeah. So it's just, I don't know. I just love art because I do not there's no, you don't have a soul if you don't love art.
1: (laughs) No. And we, and we covered there's, we have like three more of these things of where it moves as it goes. Yeah, and so
2: when the aesthetic movement started around 1868, like aestheticism is an intellectual and art movement supporting the emphasis and aesthetic values more than social political theme of literature, fine art, music, and other arts. And that's why a lot of people were starting to have issues with it because it was like uh, you're not having, you're not doing what I need you to do Mm -hmm. to support this issue. I mean, we've been seeing it, you know, more and more lately yeah and nowadays but so this meant that art from that particular m- movement was focused more on being beautiful and having a deep or rather than having that deeper meaning and uh that i mean a lot of times that's what i think a lot of the younger people look for that deeper meaning mm-hmm. instead of just seeing the beauty of it
1: right and yeah and it's because there wasn't any it was just a pretty picture it was art for art's sake so it's like we're just yeah. gonna we're just gonna create this, you're gonna throw it up, it's gonna look beautiful. Uh-huh. And that moves into our next term of the the arts movement is the Arts and Crafts movement of eighteen eighty seven is when it started. This is from artstory.org. And this was interesting. So this is in 1887 in the Arts and Craft um, Exhibition Society, which gave the movement its name. It was formed in London with Walter Crane as its first president. It held its first exhibition there in November of 1888 in the New Gallery. And the aims were to mostly ignore the distinction between fine and decorative art. And allow the worker, the craftsman, to earn the title of the artist. And this was dominated by uh, decorative arts and bolstered by a strong selection of works of Morris and Co. Who was kind of the the driving force between, bet- for the arts and crafts movement. And mm-hmm. he lived in this home that I the name escapes me. But it was basically this revolution of getting back to artisans and craftsmen making the art and not... Being mass-produced by machine, right? And so it was a switching to like this three-year cycle starting in um, 1893. The society's exhibitions served to keep arts and crafts movement in the public eye, and proved to be critical successes successes into the new century. Though by the 1920s, persistent organizational problems and organizations antipathy towards machine production ultimately doomed its original mission like they were so against it they it just uh-huh. folded in on itself but morris wanted craftsmen to like he believed that there was no higher form of artistry than weaving and tapestry work he just uh-huh. thought that that was like the epitome of what it was supposed to be and that everything should be created by hand by a craftsman and an artist and really put it back in that culture instead of right, what we were seeing in the aesthetic movement of let's just make something pretty, pretty. Mm hmm.
2: Yeah. I mean, I've had, I've ha- I do have a couple of woven baskets that were done by hand and you can't buy that.
1: No, no. And I love, um, there's some really great things we have coming up in the spring of textiles we purchased that mm-hmm. are, all hand embroidered, hand cross stitched, and they're just—they're beautiful to hold. They're beautiful to look at. Is I would prefer it way more than uh, a machine embroidered. And then there was um, there's this woman on TikTok and Instagram that is a lace maker, and oh, she wow. just makes lace. And she made um, a commemorative bib, like the the. It's, I don't think it's called a bib. The collar. For yeah. Ruth Bader Ginsburg.
0: Oh. And she handmade
1: yeah. it. And um, she has all these videos and she'll do these side by side comparisons of lace making by hand and lace making by machine. And it's just I mean.
2: Yeah. My great grandma and even my grandma, they used to crochet doilies. Oh. And I think I have like a I think I have a tablecloth somewhere that my great grandma had made and like, it's so finely detailed, and I just, it's mm-hmm. so, I, I could never, I can crochet, but I can't crochet on that level.
1: No, my grandmother always wanted to teach me. She makes these cute hot pads by hand with decorative towels, and then oh, she yeah. hand crochets the outside edge, but she she tats it with, like, the lace-making thread. Mm-hmm. And she's like, it's just, it's very simple. You could take one apart and figure <laughs> it out. And I'm like, I can't. I know when
2: my great grandma passed away, she has quilt covers that she never finished. And I was like looking at it and I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to pay somebody to finish this. And my grandma's like, no, it's easy. You just get the batting and get some fabric and you just follow the pattern. And I'm just like, grandma, I can't even like sew a straight line, let alone like a curve. And because my grandma did everything by hand. And so those like, like you
1: can see and it's evenly like. I couldn't. I would get I so pissed off by the end of it. I'd just be like running <laughs> the needle through.
2: I had got the batting and some fabric and I laid it together and I was just like, oh, nah, we're just going to put this nice back in the box until I can figure out what take else to Take the Brady's
1: it. and have it machine quilted. <laughs> Whatever. I could, I couldn't. No, I couldn't it's it. so bad. And then the next, but not the last we didn't, I didn't keep going into these because we've talked about Art Nouveau, Art Deco. Modern. Yeah, like a lot
2: of that stuff has already come up once, but one that we haven't really touched on is the symbolism. Which I f-
1: I feel like if anybody knows uh, or has seen fine art, they yeah. would instantly recognize symbolism.
2: And this one, I, because <laughs> I, I took an art class in college, and this one gave me a headache because so many people, like the professor would be like, what does this symbolize for you? And I'd say something like, no wrong. I'm like, oh, my
1: God. <laughs> no never mind all right well i'm just gonna
2: but so symbolism did start around like the 1890s which i i was i don't remember learning that part i didn't think it was that early yeah i thought it was much later Mm -hmm. um but symbolist artworks are marked with unmodulated colors broad brushwork and flat abstract forms it's important to mention that symbolists were a loose group of artists who had different artistic styles and techniques, but they all em- emphasized the importance of imagination and emotions over the realism and rationalism, which made them members of the symbolist movement. Instead of depicting their immediate reality of symbol, the symbolist expressed emotions, thoughts, and fantasies. Symbolists were looking for an escape from their everyday life. They found a sanctuary in their personal beliefs fantasies, mythical and biblical stories, love, eroticism,
1: eroticism, they shouldn't spell it right, eroticism. Eroticism.
2: It's another word. (laughs) Gray, shut up. (laughs) Love, eroticism, sex, but also fear, decadence, death, and the occult are often featured in the symbolist work, which you see in the early stuff.
1: And the most popular uh, symbolism artists that people are going to be familiar with is Picasso
2: yeah for sure because that's, that's the one that you automatically learn mm-hmm. first off in school and then like around him is others and
1: these early forms I'm going to share my screen with you for just a second these early forms of symbolism are a, more of a favorite of mine than these later versions that are talked about like Picasso and He'll bear with me while there's some noise in the background <laughs> and
2: yeah and don't get me wrong, like some of picasso's work is amazing and i do um enjoy some of it but sure like I, and again it's a, but it's the symbolism it's like you see something and somebody else sees something else and it's like that's where it got hard for me when it came to art.
1: Yes. And that was um, one of the things that when I first saw, one of my clients has this tattooed, The Kiss by Gustav Klimt. Oh, yes.
2: I love that one. It is
1: a beautiful, we'll share this on um the Instagram but that was one of the first pieces of symbolism I'd ever seen and then there's like this one which is the death of the grave digger which is an early form of symbolism
2: I've never seen that one
1: look at how beautiful that is so this image has this beautiful angel standing over the grave with black wings that are slowly kind of wrapping around this elder man that's in the hole digging the grave it's a winter scene it's gorgeous
2: it's i've never. that is
1: isn't this beautiful to look at
2: it's super see and so this to me with for my symbolism is that the man is looking upon the angel thinking this is my heaven
0: mm-hmm.
1: and somebody
2: else will come behind me and be like nope that's not what it is and it's like
1: Right, and this artist, Carl, uh, Carlo Schwab, he had a different take on death by portraying the irony of the gravedigger digging his own grave. So it's yeah. the old gravedigger, he's inside the grave, he's dug looking up at this beautiful dark angel who's holding a green light and his heart. The symbolism is not lost on the audience, the angel is the angel of death and she's holding the gravedigger's heart and soul. His time has come. It's, and it's beautiful to look at, we'll share this one also. It's super I love that one. So that was, you know, and then there's other, so those are two very, there's this one, there's another one, the death of a grave digger. There are lots of different, the two that we'll be sharing on the Instagram are two very different stylistically symbolism artworks. And
2: that was the thing with symbolism too. It spans from one end to the other. Mm-hmm. Like there was no, this is how this is depicted for everybody.
1: Yeah. It is, and this is, you know, every episode we do. There's like something new that I learn. That now it's just a part of Sam. Yeah,
2: for sure. Here, for sure.
1: One of the the other things we talked about during her interview was the lives and deaths of Black Civil War soldiers. Mm-hmm. And I am no expert on that. I cannot fully speak on that. There is a lot of history entrenched. In that era, obviously. So I'm going to put a link on um, this episode page on our website as well as link it um, in our link tree for the month that this episode is up. And it will be there was the American Battlefield Trust on YouTube has this fantastic four minute video and it is um, about black Civil War soldiers and it is uh, narrated by the historian Hari Jones and Harry Jones passed away in 2018. But there are TED Talks with Harry Jones about Black Civil War soldiers and that time in American history. He is a font of fucking knowledge about it, and I am going to leave it to him to speak on that. So we'll have that linked in our link tree this video. We will also have it on our website. So if you're hearing this episode in the future outside of the month of January 2021, it will always be there for you to reference. It's a, a absolutely incredible video and it is something that our education system has very very clearly dropped the fucking ball on teaching all of american history to all of its americans and that is something that i know future generations are fixing
2: Uh Uh yeah
1: because we we done fucked up Ah, yeah I yeah. So that. that was, and one of the little blips about it was in April of 1861, when the civil war began, it was obviously not legal for men of African descent to join the federal army, but they could join the Navy, which I was like, what, that doesn't make any sense. And then it wasn't until July 17th, 1862, when Congress passed the Militia Act, to allowing African Americans to join the federal army. And then after that comes the Emancipation yeah. Proclamation, which had more. So it's just it builds upon itself, but it's tragic. It's tragic.
2: Yeah, very much.
1: Um, I'm also going to link on the website the link to the Mutter Museum. If you oh, live yeah. anywhere near, please go to this absolutely incredible museum. I can't wait to visit in one day. Oh, yeah, that's going to be <sighs> both of us. You and I are just going to be <laughs> squealing in delight. Oh my God.
2: I so feel when we start we're able to travel, we'll be squealing constantly. Yes. Everybody like, be like, what, who's slaughtering the pigs? <laughs> who's like screaming that?
1: across the country? Oh, yes, it's just Sam Jill. So there was, I'm going to do a little. If you listen to Armchair X, where he says Philadelphia. 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 So the Motor Museum of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia. So they have rotating exhibits and all of those different things in it. But they have... One of the largest collections of medical wet specimens in the entire world. And they have just incredible. Oh, I can't wait to go. I know. I think
2: i watched a doc. I don't know if it was this one or if it was one in London, but I watched a documentary on it and they were just kind of showing what they had. I'm just like,
1: mm-hmm.
2: I want to go. And my husband's like, what are you watching? And I'm like, Shut.
1: <laughs> leave me." you be. have your stuff. I have mine. This is mine. And then another lovely person that we talked about on the show is Evan from Obscura Antiques Mm -hmm. who is, was kind of my Northern star Evan and Mike from um, and um, Ryan Cohn and Evan recently is going to, I believe that she's going to start reselling antiques again. So she posted this post on Instagram And um, it says, it's been a busy few months. My good friend, Randy Fotia, asked me if I'd like to share some space with him at the People's Store in Lambertville, which is, I believe, in New Jersey. And I thought, sure, sounds like fun. Well, it's been great. In this short time, I've managed to get my new business up and running. I've reconnected with old customers and introduced myself to some new ones. She has a new website, obscurewest.com where she'll be blogging about old things, favorite places, and the mysterious lives of objects. Her online store is not quite up yet and running, but you can visit the brick and mortar 362 days a year. So those of you that followed the obscure journey from the beginning that missed that store, there's another one coming. And Mike is now on TikTok.
2: You know, one of these days I'm going to be on TikTok.
1: One of these days. One of
2: these days,
1: guys. And of course, we can't forget the reason for the season. The person that uh, uh, connected us and was connected to this world, um, our dear Kate of Roses and Rue Antiques. Her Instagram is absolutely exquisite. She has that fine art eye and every antique she takes a picture of you Mm -hmm. fall in love with. Yeah. Um. Her next shop update is January 8th at 8 p.m. Eastern. So if you go to her Instagram, turn on those notifications. You can wait for those Victorian goodies to drop. Her website is rosesandrueantiques.com. And that's where she sells everything. She is very knowledgeable and very particular about the things she resells. So you know when you purchase mm-hmm. something from her that it is going to be exactly what it needs to be and as always we will have all of this linked on our website the mothballprophecies.com and on our Instagram
2: the Mothball prophecies originals yes
1: and uh, still doing the Twitter thing we're still figuring that out <laughs> oh yes we are still doing that. yeah i just feel that's like that's another one i'm not great at guys we'll get to it <laughs> and um, if you joined our live with us on Sunday, you saw the official announcement of our Patreon. And that mm-hmm. was really a labor of love for the two of us. And we have uh, Ooh, really was. enjoyed it.
2: Yeah, it's been fun. And we hope you guys enjoy what we have for you and what we are planning for you guys. Mm-hmm. We honestly, we couldn't do this without you guys. So,
1: no, we are forever forever grateful for the community that we have created and seen um, the friends we have made again a wonderful shout out to Riley of Darling Diddy's and to Melco Leather Melissa Daw for helping us Jasmine and Kyla of Corkscrew Curiosities Um, they are the ones that helped us source the fabric, the vintage linens and embroidered things and all the wonderful stuff came from their shops. The leather key fobs that are being made for the Patreon tiers were made in Melko Leather Shop with her close guidance behind me.
2: (laughs) No fingers were lost in the making of any of these.
1: Yep, the totes are being hand-sewn by our ever-devoted spellcheck, who is a fantastic seamstress.
2: She's amazing, guys. And
1: Her. Yeah. yeah, she's incredible. And the screen printing that's being done on the totes is being done by Jill and I in my yeah. basement. <laughs> <laughs> so be sure to check out our Patreon. There will be a bonus episode once a month uploaded for the top three Patreon tiers. There are some really great perks that are there for everybody. We really tried to think of everybody and everybody's availability and budget. We can't wait to see what you guys do with it and how that grows. Uh, We thank you so much. And as always, I hope you guys find some good shit.
2: And I hope you always remember to look under the tables. Bye. See ya!